Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be. And we are literally, we'll be talking about the love of Jesus Christ. And so I'm thankful for the message uh, in song. And that wasn't on purpose, um, but I love it when it happens like that. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be. And this is an interesting text. And if you'll forgive me this morning, I have been, um, I'm fighting. Um, I don't have uh, much of a voice today. And so that may uh, limit how long I go. And you say, well, praise the Lord for those infirmities, pastor. So um, I'll try to get through it and hopefully not be uh, too grating on the eardrums here this morning. Um, But Ephesians 5, we're going to read it in just a minute. It's an interesting text because Paul teaches two big subjects here. Um, He teaches on marriage and he teaches on the church. Um, And marriage is kind of the illustration Um, or church is the illustration for marriage, or marriage is the illustration for the church. However you want to look at it, he interweaves this teaching together to make points about both. And uh, Brother Chad has been going through love and respect with a couples class, and I know he was in here this morning teaching on that, and uh, it was it referenced Ephesians 5 today. Um, But Paul's point is the marriage relationship, but he uses truths about the church to instruct regarding that relationship so in doing that he gives us insight into how the church works Um, and and when I say the church as a concept when I say the church I I personally believe um, you know that a church is lived out locally and so when I say the church I mean the idea of the church or the institution as a whole of the church but understand that that the church is lived out on a visible level and, and, and we could go through a lot of that. We're not going to get into all that today, but, but I, I, would t- I could teach about marriage from this. It'd be perfectly appropriate. But I'd like to glean some things about our relationship to the church this morning. And, and, and not because I think that's what Paul's primarily doing, but because he uses this text to teach about the church. And that's something I think we need to learn more about. It's, it's something that I think we ought to have a better idea about. And so I was, I was tempted to just start into the next series in the book of John this morning, but it's been on my heart to talk about, to preach about um, church membership or commitment to a church. And while we have a break in between um, series, I thought this would be a good time to do that. And, and so um, we're going to begin reading in Ephesians 5.18. Go ahead and stand, and we'll begin reading again in verse 5.18. And, uh, and then read down through the end of the chapter. And just, and this is more for context, we won't go through all of these verses, um, but it says in verse 18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's a good reason, if you read your Bible, you can't, you don't find a whole lot of positive viewpoints of alcohol in the Scripture. So I'm just going to point that out today. That's something that we probably should teach or preach on again at some point. But he says, be not drunk with wine. The idea is, don't put yourself under the control of anything other than the Holy Spirit. And that should be what controls you. He says in verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, a natural outflow of being controlled by the Holy Spirit will be singing. It'll be praising the Lord, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. I wanted to preach on that this entire morning, but my wife wouldn't let me. Uh, Verse 23. 
for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And for those that think, well, it's not really fair that there's all these demands placed on the wife to submit to the husband. Um, understand there's, there are demands placed on the husband as well. The husband is, I would say, maybe even higher demands placed on the husband because the husband is told to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty tall order. So it's, so it's not just a matter of one is better than the other. All are equal. Everyone just has a different role in the relationship. Um, verse 26, um, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Uh, the title of the message this morning is this, Christ loves the church. Do you? Christ loves the church. Do you love the church? And, and there are so many things vying for our love. And there are so many things that the world says, oh, I love this. I love pizza. I love puppy. Yeah, thank you. I love puppies. I mean, not really. But, you know, everyone uses the term love all the time for all these different things. Um, but uh, there are so many things vying for our love. But there are actually few things that deserve that kind of love. Amen. Relationships, obviously, but there's an institution on earth that Jesus Christ started, I believe, while he was on planet earth. He started the local church. And, and, and it is perpetuated throughout history. And it is still exists today. And he died for it. Amen. Do you love the church? Because Jesus Christ did. And if he loves the church that much, we should too. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we need you. I need you. My voice. Lord, I pray that you keep it, to be, keep it strong and help me to convey these things in, in a way that is helpful. And uh, you know this has been on my heart for a while. And, and uh, I just pray that I'd be able to convey some of these things in a clear manner today. And God, we deserve, your people deserve to have it be clear and have it be precise. And I pray that you would just help it to be um, convicting and compelling as well. And God, that you would give us a love for the church like you have. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to do something a little different uh, this morning. I don't typically uh, use the projectors in the mornings or during my preaching, but sometimes I do. And I was reading some Gallup poll uh, church attendance statistics from a couple of years ago, and I found some of these very interesting. So I'm going to show some of these up here. Um, so these are religious trends in our country. 
Um, and one of the trends is that for the first time since the late 1930s, fewer than half of Americans say they belong to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. So for the first time in our country's um, well, since the 1930s, so it's been almost 100 years since a poll like this was organized, um, then most Americans, the majority of Americans now, say they don't belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. Um, only 40%, 47% of Americans say they belong to a house of worship, which is down from 70% in the mid-1990s. And by the way, if there are typos, I apologize. I just did these slides this morning on a whim because I thought if my voice um, fades away, I can at least show them something on the screen that'll keep their attention. Okay, so 47% of Americans now say they belong to a house of worship, which is down 70% um, from the mid-1990s. That's a pretty quick drop, isn't it? The decline in church membership coincides with the rise of the so-called nuns. And I don't mean in a convent. I mean nuns, those who claim no religious affiliation. I'm a member of none is the idea. Gallup now reports that about one in five Americans, um, about 21%, which I'm assuming that'd be higher now a couple of years later, is a nun, making them as large a group as evangelicals or Catholics. I mean, that's an incredible number when you think about it. Other polls would put that number um, actually closer to 30%, which is an incredibly high number of people that have no religious affiliation. All right, we can go to the next one there. From 2008 to 2010, 73% of traditionalists, which would be Gallup's term for Americans born before 1945, we have a, a few traditionalists then in this room right here, 73% um, were church members, well, that number dropped to 66% in 2020. And in that same time frame, membership among baby boomers, uh, which baby boomers would be born mid-40s to the mid-60s, um, we've got a larger number of those here than, than the previous. Um, that dropped from 63 to 58% in that time frame. Generation X, which would technically be the generation that I would be a part of, which would be mid-60s to uh, mid-90s or so, uh, I'm sorry, mid-60s to early 80s, um, would drop from, 50, uh, from 57% to 50%. And the millennials, which would be um, after the 80s, from 80s till close to 2000, they dropped from 51 to 36%. So that drop was much higher than the other, other categories, the millennials there. And, and so it's across the board as well in religious affiliation. So from 2021 to 2022. I want you to understand the math there. It's not hard, but just catch that. That's one year. Um, and I'm using the Southern Baptist group um, because they would be the closest to what we would be as independent Baptists. And by the way, we are independent Baptists, which means we don't answer to a board. We don't answer to a denomination. We support missionaries that we choose as a church to take on. Um, we are autonomous. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're rebels. It simply means that we try to follow the pattern that we see in the New Testament um, that a church answers to its congregation and to the Lord and not to some overriding body. And so the Southern Baptists would be the closest, though, um, in terms of function and form and philosophy. But in one year, 21 to 22, the Southern Baptists lost over 450,000 members and had 416 fewer churches. 
And, in the, and since they've been keeping record over 100 years, that's the largest one-year percentage drop in over a century. So I, I'm just trying to give you the idea that these statistics are alarming. These statistics are not trending in, in a positive direction. It's not healthy. And so I was thinking, well, then what's contributing to these statistics, to these trends? Why aren't people interested? Why are they losing interest? And I, I think we could probably talk about culture and we could talk about how one generation um, drifts and another generation drifts more. And you know how it worked in the book of Judges. Another generation comes up that knows not the Lord. And, and because of that, we're seeing these drifts. But just a few reasons um, why maybe this would be happening. I think authenticity might be one. And that young people are interested in authenticity. They want to see something real and genuine and sincere, which I think is kind of funny considering that the young generation um, is a social media generation where nothing is authentic. So, you know, I'll put something on social media. Um, you know, I'll stage it for five minutes to make it look like I just rolled out of bed. Um, but, but the millennials will be fairly judgmental about somebody that they perceive as being hypocritical, which is ironic, isn't it? And, and don't we all know, and I'm not trying to just bash a young generation. I want our young generation, our younger folks to understand that if you're going to value authenticity, be authentic. And be real, be genuine yourself. And, and, and don't just uh, fall into the trap of presenting your highlight reel on your social media accounts. Be authentic. There are, and I will say this too, there are hypocrites everywhere. And, and there are people that don't live up to the standard that we think they should in all, fa um, all uh, fashion or in all walks of life. Be careful just to hold the church accountable and not anybody else. Um, I think maybe abuse has been a reason, you know, and, and I, I mean, I, this is a subject I don't like to talk about, but there has been a heightened awareness of abuse in certain denominations, and, and, and I'm not going to get into all that. I mean, independent Baptist churches have had, have had issues in churches at times, and it, it happens everywhere, and by the way, I'll say this, abuse is never right, it should always be reported, it should always be dealt with, and, and it's a, that's the proper position to take, um, that it, abuse should never be swept under the rug, okay? Uh, that's not what we're trying to do. Sin should, the truth makes us free. And uh, sin, if it's sin, then it should be uh, dealt with. I think legalism is a problem. Uh, meaning that uh, when people replace Bible truth with their own personal preferences and, and they come down hard, about those personal preferences, um, then we've got to be careful because the next generation or people in, in our churches and our pews, they see through that and they say, well, that doesn't really add up. Why are they so strong and passionate about this over here as a preference um, when it's, it's hard to see that in scripture? Well, that's what the Pharisees did. They replaced, we, we read it, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. They replaced the command, commandments of God with the traditions of men. And that spirit tends to drive people away. People aren't as interested in opinion as they are interested in what the Bible says. And that's why when we gather here at Eastside Baptist Church, we open God's word. That's what we're looking at. It's not my opinion, it's God's opinion. Um, fear of commitment is another reason. I believe that that is a trend in our culture. It's hard to deny that people are increasingly afraid 
of commitment. And the term is gamophobia, G-A-M-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. And that word gamophobia actually comes from a Greek word gamos, which means marriage. So, so it's become a term to kind of be all-encompassing in our culture about this sphere of being committed to something. And they use the, the culture's viewpoint of marriage to define it. Gamophobia, which is ironic because uh, marriage is, is becoming less and less of, a institu- of an institution in our culture as well. People are not wanting to commit to marriage, and so they, you know, they, they live together or they, you know, they have a long-term cohabitation and uh, say, well, you know, it's just a piece of paper. And to that, I would say, um, is, if you love them, are they not worth a piece of paper to you? I mean, they should be. Um, there's a fear of commitment, especially in the younger generation. And, uh, you know, Gen Z would, uh, would be those born in, in the 1990s up through 2012. Um, there is a fear of, of commitment. And there's kind of a lackadaisical mindset toward committing to something. And if you think about that and you realize that Gen Z, it now makes up over 30% of the global population. So if that's a trend among young people to not be willing to commit to something, um, then that is going to be a pervading mindset in our culture and all around the world because they are becoming the the next generation that's leading. And and so it's interesting that uh, the young generation don't like to commit to things like jobs. And they don't like to commit to things um, like school. They want to take, you know, kind of take it easy and take the easy path. I'm not saying it's all their fault. I think we have contributed to that as well. But it's interesting, though, that to me that they're not willing to commit to some of the big stuff, but they have no, no problem committing to a cell phone contract or to an Internet contract or an Internet provider or to a gym membership or the young generation is signing up uh, or, you know, being involved in political causes. They're committing to those things. But they're not committing to the things that would be eternally important, spiritually important. And, and, and that's a, it's a concern. Um, and I believe that it, because of the pervading idea in culture that no one looks, wants to be committed, then churches are starting to impact or adjust the way that they minister in order to accommodate gamophobia, the fear of commitment. Instead of promoting serious discipleship, um, you know, Jesus said, if you come after me and you hate not your father and mother and your brother and sister and your own life also, you can't be my disciple. Well, now churches are saying, come drink coffee, hear a relevant sermon, you'll enjoy our services. Do you see the difference? And I'm not saying that you should come into a service and not enjoy it. We want you to enjoy it. I mean, uh, and, and w- that's why I didn't dance this morning. You would not enjoy those things, okay? There are things we don't do because we want you to enjoy it. We try to have the air set. Now, many of you right now are thinking these people don't have an air conditioner. And some of you are thinking we, we need to hand out east side parkas at the Welcome Center in order to survive. I mean, we try to do our best. We have lights and, and we have a sound system and we're trying to make it comfortable. Um, but understand that discipleship, according to Jesus, comes with a cost. It's not just easy and it's not just... Um, it's not just you slide in and it doesn't require much of you. 
Um, but a lot of churches are replacing seriously, serious discipleship with um, things like, well, we've got a lot to offer your children. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have things to offer your children, um, but, but it, that shouldn't override the cost of discipleship. And there's a lot of churches that are catering to the young generation and the, the young, they have separate church for teens. And, and I, I'm a firm believer that families, um, you know, we ought to sit together in church as much as we can um, because I think a church family is stronger if, if teens are sitting with their parents. And I just think that's, that's something that, now we have a teen class and the teens have activities, but it's not all about the teens. No, we're focusing on families. The idea has almost turned into what's in this for me. You know, it used to be, I want to attend because I love God and I want to serve. But now we're saying, who has the most benefits? What do you have for me? And who gives out the best welcome center gift? You know, who has the best kids program? And you can almost see the trend in military commercials as well. You know, the focus on the military, when I was a young person, I think it's still probably the Marines motto. It's, what is it, the few, the proud, the Marines. And just being a Marine meant you were proud to be a Marine and you wanted to be a Marine. I remember when I was a young person, the Army had a, had a commercial that said, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Now, now, try to sell Gen Z on that concept. Yeah, you can get up at 4.30. We'll have more done in the first four and a half hours of the day than everybody else will get done all day. And Gen Z is like, what? <laughs> no, so have you noticed the military commercials now, it's no longer, hey, we'll do more before nine than most people do in the day. Now it's, if you sign up for the Army, we'll pay for college. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't join the military because they're going to pay for college. I'm just saying the focus is different now, isn't it? Now they're appealing to what is, uh, what is beneficial for you. They're appealing to what you can get out of this if you sign up. And it's a different mindset. It used to be, hey, I want to be involved in something bigger. I want to protect my country. Like Memorial Day tomorrow. I, will, I want to give my life if that's what's required. Because value, the value of freedom means something to me. And there's something bigger than myself. But that's not the way it is anymore. And I think it's happening in churches. And I would submit to you that the answer to reverse the religious trends that we've seen is not less commitment. I believe it's more commitment. And let me just say, if you come to Eastside and, and you plug in here at Eastside and, and you become a member and, and you want to be involved, you can expect some things from Eastside Baptist Church that you'll receive as a benefit. And we have families in our, in our church right now and they've received benefits from being part of our church. And last, just last Sunday we baptized it felt like 40 young people. I don't remember. It was maybe eight or nine young people um, between the ages of all the way down to four or five, all the way up to maybe 13 or 14. And just one after another. And those families would say, our children have been saved. Our children are growing. Our children have been baptized. Now they're a part of a church. And they've benefited from that. And I'm thankful that you get something out of it when you come to Eastside. But if you join our ranks, it also means this there will be something expected of you. That's discipleship. When Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, there's something expected of you. There's a cost. And 
so I just want to start then by thinking about what it means to be a church. And, and yeah, I sound like I'm in seventh grade again. Church. Um, this is a common definition. I think it sums it up well. The local church is a group of saved and baptized believers who regularly assemble to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the word of God, to edify one another, to exercise spiritual gifts, and to partner together to spread the gospel. I know it's a mouthful, but you can't just say a church is the people. Well, it is the people, but it means more than that. You know, a church is not a building. A church is, a building is a place that accommodates assembly. But the church is people. The church are the people involved, the baptized believers who come and assemble regularly to worship God and to be exhorted from the word of God and to edify one another and to exercise their spiritual gifts and to partner together to spread the gospel. The church is people. And by the way, I'll say this too for those that have maybe visiting, you're visiting for the first time or you're visiting for one of your first times today, you might say, these people have it all together. And I would say, I beg to differ because we're just people. Not finished products. And there may be godly people in this room. And I'm thankful for that. But every one of them is broken. And, and we're all sinners. And no one walked into here this morning. And you might think, well, you know, they look like they've got it all together. Nobody walked in thinking, I got it all together. Right. We're, we're broken sinners. And we, might, and we gather because we're broken. We, we know who we are. And we know we need this. Without this, who knows where we would be, Right? And so the best definition of a church might actually be a group of saved and baptized believers who recognize how broken they are and know they can't do anything without the help of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. And it leads to our text this morning in Ephesians 5. And Paul is exhorting the church at Ephesus to be better and to do things the right way. And, and he spends so much time writing about these things because they are a broken church. Now, Ephesus is not a bad church. They're a good church, but there are things they need to do better, and they need to be better husbands and fathers and wives, and, and, and they need to raise their children better, and they need to be better Christians, and they need to be better church members. And, and there are, but there are two points about the local church that Paul points out that gives that I want to focus on this morning. And the first is this about the church. Christ loves the church as his bride. Christ Loves the church as his bride. And you'll see how these things come together, I hope. Christ loves the church as his bride. That's one thing that you see very clearly as you read Ephesians 5. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So it's equating a husband and wife relationship to Jesus Christ and the church. And the idea is that he, he committed himself to be the savior of the body. He gave himself. He died for, for the church. He died for his people. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself. He sacrificed everything that he was on a cross to, to, so that you could be saved and I can be saved and we could be part of a church. He did that for us. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives um, as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So Christ put his own body on the line. 
He set aside all of his needs and, and he proved his love for the church when he put our needs above his own and went to the cross and died for us. And, and so Paul equates uh, how a, a husband should love his wife to how Christ loves the church. And when I said earlier, that's a tall order, it is. That's a lot to ask husbands, isn't it? That we ought to love our wives as Christ loved the church. No, the institution that we call the church and uh, this organism, you might say, is so dear to Jesus Christ's heart that he treats the church like a husband who sacrificially loves his bride. And you cannot help but see the passion a husband has or is supposed to have for his wife when you read this. He says, love her as you love your own body. You know, we're all pretty selfish. I love me. And you love you. It's like that football player, uh, Terrell Owens, for, he played for a number of teams and he was a loudmouth kind of a guy and, you know, real cocky. I remember watching a video clip of him one time coming off the field and he's coming off, he's like, I love me some me. <laughs> it's like, well, I think we all kind of feel that way. We're just not typically brave enough to express it on national television, you know. I love me some me. That's kind of our life motto. No one has to teach you to love yourself. But Paul says you are to love your wife like you love yourself, like you love your own body. Like Genesis 2 says, you leave and you cleave. And that's good instruction for husbands. But listen, I don't want you to miss this. It is mind-blowing to think when you consider that's how Jesus loves you. Unconditionally unselfishly, without reservation, he gave himself for us. And, and, uh, and I've done a few weddings, and I'm telling you, my favorite thing to do is not to watch the bride when she enters, but to watch the groom. Because when that groom sees the bride um, for the first time, hopefully, be a traditionalist, come on. <laughs> when it sees that bride for the first time, and you see his face, it's like he is floating on the platform like, oh, I can't do it. My voice is out. I was going to like high voice it, but I can't. He's floating up there. You know, and it's unbelievable to watch him look at his bride. But I want you to understand that's the picture that Paul gives. that says Jesus loves you like that. That's how precious you are to him. That's how much he loves you. I mean, when you, I mean, when he sees you, this is amazing. When he sees you, it's unconditional love. And you are, we are the bride and he is the groom. And it's unbelievable that I'm a wicked sinner and I'm broken and ashamed. But Jesus loves me. This I know. It's incredible. And what's amazing is the average groom spends his life trying to understand his wife. And never really does. But Jesus knows all about us. There are no secrets. He knows everything about you. And yet he loves you unconditionally. You're fully known. And yet you are fully loved. The one who knows you best loves you the most. Amen. Jesus Christ is completely committed. Here's the point. He is com completely committed to his church. I mean, like a husband is committed to his bride, a husband that's doing things the right way. That's how committed Jesus is to us. And it means he's completely committed to me as part of his church. 
And by the way, when, again, when I use the word church, understand that church is lived out locally and visibly. Church means assembly. Um, so how can you have an assembly unless you're in the same location? Jesus died for the church as a whole, but the church is expressed in countless ways all over the world this morning, right here in Sioux Falls and across the ocean in London and down south in Rio de Janeiro and around the world in Beijing, China and just up the road in, in Brookings, South Dakota. Um, churches, these local bodies of Jesus Christ, that's how the church is expressed to the world. That's how it functions. It functions that way. But understand, Jesus gave it all for us. He gave it all for me and he loves you unconditionally. He literally shed his blood on a cross and paid your penalty. He rescued you from hell. And the idea is of the first point, and, and we're gonna, it's going to come together, trust me, I hope. The idea here is that Christ loves his bride and he's totally committed to his bride. The idea, though, there's another idea that comes across. That second idea is of the body. And the idea that Jesus loves the bride and, it, and expresses his commitment to his bride. But there's also on our part this other picture of the body. And the body is how we express our commitment to Jesus Christ. He expresses his commitment to us as his bride. We express our commitment to him through the body. Look what he says down in verse 28. So ought, men ought, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh... And of his bones. So understand the difference here. The church benefits from Christ because we're his bride. He has done everything for us spiritually that we couldn't do. We benefit because of his commitment to his bride. But in verse 30, we see the church also called the body. And Paul changes the picture to emphasize something different, yet something just as important. See, being the bride is all about Jesus' love and devotion and commitment to us. But being part of the body means that we have an assignment to fulfill. We have a responsibility to take action as part of the body in response to the love that Jesus showed us as part of his bride. And folks, there's something to do in response to Jesus' love to us. You know, if, if somebody, if in the morning, if you, and I've done this before because I'm not thinking or not, you know, locked in. My wife will say, like, I love you. And I've got something else on my mind and I don't hear her. You know, that, that kind of makes her wonder what's going on. Yeah, I'm in big trouble. And, and, and it's happened before. Where I'm literally tuned out. I'm thinking about something else. And she says, I'm, well, maybe I'm walking out the door, headed to the church. And, and she says, all right, bye, I love you. And I'm just thinking about, and I walk out. It's like, oh, man, I got to go back and say, oh, yeah, love you too. <laughs> you know, when I don't say I love you in return, she starts to think something's wrong. And, and if you think about what we're talking about here, Jesus Christ has expressed his eternal love to us 
by sacrificing himself and committing to us as his bride. And when he says, I love you in that way, it's only natural for us to say, I love you in return. How do we do that? Through the body. He showed us his commitment to us as the bride. We show our commitment to him through the body. We say, you love me that much? I can't believe you would love me that much. What can I do to show you I love you? Well, God, Jesus Christ, placed on this earth an organism, an institution, if you want to call it, a local church, a body of believers that assemble together, and he wants us to live out our Christian lives, fulfilling her purposes through that church. So he loves me as part of his bride, and I want to prove to him I love him as part of the body. And I'm not going to just sit back and let everybody else do the work. I'm going to jump in and be involved and serve and commit myself. See, some are the hands, according to 1 Corinthians 12, a body is made up of body parts. Some are the hands and some are the feet and, and some are the eyes. And by the way, we've already seen it right here in verse 23. There's one head and his name is not Jason. His name is Jesus. He's the head of this church. I might be the under shepherd and I, and I may have some roles or responsibilities that others may not have, but I'm not in charge of this church. This is Jesus' church. And the body can't function fully, though, without missing pieces. It's impacted, it's hindered if a church is, if a body is missing body parts. But these days, back to the beginning, in this culture of gamophobia, a fear of commitment, there are a lot of body parts that have gone missing in action. There are a lot of places uh, where, where the God's work is limited because it's hindered because there are people that God has a plan to be part of an individual body and fulfill a role and take some steps in working as a body to function and produce. But because they're missing in action, that body is being hindered. Listen, if God saved you, he has a plan for you to be a part of a body and functioning and serving. You have a role to play that nobody else does. Too many people say, I love Jesus, I just don't love his church. I think that's faulty thinking. First, you're not fully understanding what he did for you. He committed himself wholeheartedly to you. Second, you're not understanding what Jesus requires of you. He requires commitment to the same degree that he committed to you. And in other words, it's a marriage relationship. Remember? Marriage, church, it all goes together. Both are equally committed. You show me a marriage where one is committed and one is not, and show me one of those working, and I'll pay you for that. It only works if both are committed. Some people say, well, marriage is 50-50. I don't believe that. I believe marriage is 100-100. 100% commitment on both sides. Both partners fully and unconditionally committed. See, here's the problem. We have no issue gladly receiving the benefits of Jesus Christ as part of his bride and, and part of the church. And we gladly take it. And he's our unconditional loving husband. We're thankful he died so we could be saved. And it's incredible. We have no problem being happy with his commitment to us as a bride. But we have somehow forgotten that marriage is 100-100. 100% on his side, 100% on our side. And when it comes to commitment as part of the body, many have left the groom hanging. He gave it all, but they don't give much. And that's not marriage. Marriage is a marriage where one is a giver and the other is a taker and it never changes. 
That's a miserable way to live. If Christ died for you, why aren't you willing, why aren't you willing to commit yourself to what he died for? You know, you can't say you love Jesus and not love what Jesus loves. And far too many Christians embrace the benefits of being the bride. But they shun the commitment of being part of the body. See, I think about Memorial Day. Can you imagine having all this freedom from those who have died for us and simply being a taker? Never doing anything productive or in society. Well, there's a lot of people that do that, unfortunately. But, man, can you imagine doing that to Jesus? Who died, who gave himself so that we could have freedom and we never do anything to produce for him in return. What a faulty mindset. You say, well, what does this look like? Well, I think you ought to love your church the way Christ loves the church. He put our needs above his. And so put your, put your needs behind the needs of the body. Say there's a bigger need. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live for the good of the whole. I'm gonna set aside my, my conveniences. I'm gonna serve. I, I won't be offendable. I won't be defensive. Listen, you say, I, know, I know things aren't perfect. I mean, a church, though, doesn't have to be perfect for you to choose to love it. And if you say, well, it better be perfect or I'm not going to love it, then you have a higher standard than Jesus Christ does. He loves his church and he knows all about us. So assume that it's okay to commit yourself to a church that's imperfect because Jesus Christ did. That's love, by the way. Love forgives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love forbears. Love puts others' needs above its own. So what does it look like? Well, love your church the way Christ did. To submit to the authority of the church. And this, that's a reason some people may not commit. But I want you to point out, it's, this is not a dictatorship. It's a partnership. God brings, in, in marriage, God brings two together. They have complementary functions, complementary roles. One, but, but, but understand there are times that one person has to make the call. Somebody has to break the tie. Have you ever been in a position where nobody was leader and nobody had the authority to make a decision? That doesn't work either. There are times where decisions have to come down to the authority God has placed in Eastside Baptist Church, the pastor and the spiritual leadership, the deacons. And a lot of people think, well, I wish I was in charge. I just want to point out, you realize that the guy that has to break the ties has to also answer for every decision. And not just answer to you, I answer to him. And that's not as glamorous or as easy as you might think it is. So be willing to just submit to the authority structure God set up because it's for your own good. We could read Ephesians 4 and see that. But one thing that gets missed is that all of us submit to somebody. I mean, I submit to the Lord I, I mean, I submit to other men when I ask them to give me feedback and accountability. And so how do you submit? Well, submit one to another, the text says. Um, submit to the word of God and submit to the structure of the church. Just believe that God's process is best. And I think you'll find out once you submit, God's plan really does work. How else am I going to sh show that I am committed? Be a faithful attender. Be faithful. Be in your place. Verse 26, he says uh, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. 
How do you expect to have cleansing and sanctification if you're not putting yourself under hearing God's word? You need to be here. And I'm not saying every message is a home run. Some are singles and some are bunts and some are strikeouts, okay? Sometimes I get hit by the pitch. But, but there is a process of being sanctified and cleansed by the word that all of us need. So be in your place. Be at every service. Some people look for any excuse not to come. I would say that when I think about Jesus dying for this, that I ought to use this as an excuse not to do other things. Meaning this comes first. This is the priority. Because he died for it, it's his priority, so I'm going to make it my priority. Here's another way you live this out. Be an active part of your church family. Find ways to serve. You know, you have skills and gifts that nobody else does. As the pastor, I don't have all the gifts. Uh, we need everybody. We need all hands on deck. We need everybody on board. And if you see a need, it may be that God is trying to get you to prompt you to fill a void that needs to be filled. What I'm saying to you today is if Jesus Christ committed to you as, as groom to bride, then your responsibility is to commit to him as the body. You have a role to play, and some people are opposed to joining a church. We'll talk about that more maybe in a couple of weeks, but I'll look at verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You know, I think verse 31 makes a pretty good case of the level of commitment it takes to be part of a body. And if Christ is the groom and he commits to us, but we as the bride say, well, I'm not really ready to commit to him. You show me a marriage that works that way. It doesn't. But I believe we have far too many people, I would say it this way, not try to be trite, I think we have far too many people, not just at Eastside, I mean church in general, far too many people that are dating the church. Dating is easy. There's no commitment. But when you finally commit, that's when God really starts to work and move and you have places to serve and you've got areas of growth that you're finally seeing. Just like in a marriage, commitment strengthens us. It makes us better spouses. It motivates us to do what's best for each other. It burns all other bridges and say, no, I'm all in with you. See, we need people. Here's where it comes down to. We need people that are committed to the church like a husband and wife are committed to each other. That's what Paul is saying. We need people that are committed to the church like a husband and wife are committed to each other. Yes, being part of the bride means there's a lot of benefits, but you're also part of a body, which means there are responsibilities. Amen. If you haven't joined, let's talk about it. And it's time to commit, not based on what the church can do for me, but what might God use me to do for us? Are you dating the church? It's time to join, commit. So you can grow and serve and you might be a member, but your commitment level looks like dating. And it might be time for you to find a place in the body and contribute. Maybe you're not part of the bride because uh, you've never been saved. What a shame that Jesus Christ would make a proposal offer eternal life and we reject that 
You know, he wants to save you this morning. You're a sinner. You're broken. All of us are. And you must place your faith in Jesus Christ if you are to be reconciled and for eternity avoid the consequence of a, of a burning hell. Jesus died so you could have eternal life. Would you receive it this morning? In what way can you commit to your local church? Is it joining? Is it volunteering? Is it serving more faithfully? Is it being saved? Christ loves the church. I'll say it more specifically. Christ loves this church. He loves Eastside Baptist Church. He wants the very best for Eastside Baptist Church. And in case you're missing the point, that means he wants what's best for you because the church is people. He has a big plan for all of us. And on earth right now, the organism, the institution that represents Jesus is the church. It is his desire for you to be a part of it, to commit to it, to grow through it, to serve and contribute. Otherwise, all we ever do is receive the benefits as the bride and we never contribute to the body. I don't want to be that way. Let's say this morning, I'm going to love the church like Jesus does. And however that applies to a change you need to make, let's make it this morning.